0: Okie dokie, here we go. My name is Brad, one of the ministers here. We're going to continue our series. We're in John 1. Hopefully you've read it. I know I posted uh, the uh, kind of assignments for reading schedule last minute, so if you didn't, that's fine. But I did tell you last week that that was your homework, so we'll see how many people do homework around here. Um... So, uh, but it is all posted now, so you have full advance notice for what we'll be reading each week in our sermons and what the homework is for each week. We're going to be in John 1, uh, 1 through 18. Also mentioned that um, you ought to uh, maybe buy the book, How to Read the Bible Book by Book for All It's Worth, um, which is actually two books. And, uh, but the book by book one is a really great one for doing some of what we're going to be talking about with studying and reading the scripture devotionally in the next coming weeks. Okay, I have two little announcements I want to add on there. The first one being that uh, next week we'll start our uh, fundraising kind of campaign. Hopefully it'll only last for a week or two weeks for our Metro Auto Ministry where we provide uh, cars and repairs for free for people who are in need. We've had a matching donation of 6000 and so we want to kind of raise 6000 so we can get that full money. Uh, then the week after that we'll start uh, raising money for Spring Hita, which is... Uh, <laughs> Exciting for our teens. It's our annual church-wide auction uh, where you can get good things for cheap, uh, and you can provide uh, money for our teens to go to camp in Colorado. And so just keep an eye out for that. Uh, We've always got fundraising opportunities around here, which I think can get overwhelming, but hopefully it's not uh, um, a bad thing for you. We should always have fundraisers. I mean, we as a church, we operate on a pretty shoestring budget, And we do that intentionally, and so we want people to kind of uh, fundraise based in personal needs that they have. And so rather than have some big fund that we just sort of keep, we want you guys to see where the money is going, and that's why we do a lot of really individual uh, type fundraising opportunities. So uh, be a part of that, save up some money, don't eat for a day, uh, and uh, don't do Uber Uber Eats like I do. Um, I do that once a week, it's bad, right? Uh, my dad says I'm lazy as a result, uh, but that's fine. It's, you know, you a couple people there together, it kind of bounces out. Except for you're you the one that pays, and then how do they pay you back? Uh, Venmo, maybe, but I don't know. That's just too much. Okay, so um, we are continuing on in a series called Building Belief and the Right Reading of Scripture. I forgot my second announcement. Yeah, I should probably give the second announcement. The second one is that in probably two weeks, just keep an eye out, We'll start our class, uh, our morning class uh, that starts at 9.45 and goes to 10.45 on studying the scripture. And uh, this will be somewhat of a technical class, but I'm pretty excited about it because I have just last minute as of this morning uh, told a few people and reminded one that they're going to help me out with that. We have among us some English majors who are, uh, you know, amateurish like me, uh, literary critics because they're not graduated yet, but they probably still know quite a bit more than I know. And so I'm going to enlist their help, if they're willing to do that, um, to tackle kind of five time periods in literary history that have shaped how we interpret the scripture now, that being ancient Near East culture, Greek culture, the medieval time, uh, the Renaissance era, and modern methods. And so um, this won't be terrible for you. There's no reading involved, so to speak, like books, but there will be articles and we'll try to kind of guide you in some Right ways of looking at this, the goal of which is just to simply to recognize that there are time periods where people's culture influenced how they interpreted scripture, and we are the uh, uh, inheritors of those methods. And so if we can learn a little bit about the methods, both both the ones that we use today and the ones in the past... We can make a little bit more sense why some people looked crazy in their interpretation of scripture a long time ago, but we can also do ourselves a, a, the justice of learning from the mistakes that they've made and from the principles they tried to uphold and, and really bringing that into our own study of scripture. So this is primarily for people who really have never studied anything more than maybe how to read the Bible for all it's worth uh, or book by book on a, a ways to go about studying the, the text of scripture, okay? So five different uh, weeks we'll be meeting for that. And then towards the end of the semester, we're going to do a class on devotional reading, and, uh, which is really much more kind of about trying to connect with God and move away from that reading with some plan of behavior or uh, kind of close encounter and experience with God. All right? So that'll be in the coming, uh, coming weeks. You can kind of look forward to that. So uh, John 1, 1 through 18, uh, the sermon title is starting with the Word. All right? The Word. I remember a picture... Um, a little while ago where we convinced my mom that word was like a cool thing to do and we had her in a picture do word and it's still one of my favorite pictures. Now, I know that dates me a little bit because that's not a cool term anymore, but uh, that's fine. I've gotten used to learning how non-cool my terms and memes and things like that are and I'm more or less comfortable with that, so that's fine. Um, So starting with the word, I want to remind you of two things that we talked about last time because the, the step from... Last week to this week is pretty small, actually. So we're not going to take a, you know, go in a hugely different direction. I don't know if that's a word. Um, we're just going to kind of add a little bit onto what we did last week. And the goal is because the week after, like next week, we're going to kind of start getting into some of the nitty-gritty parts of this. And if you look through the sermon series, we have a lot of really, I think, interesting topics that some of you should be uh, kind of more or less excited about learning um, because you've had questions yourself, whether that's specific issues, whether that's, you know, how to read, um, whether that's uh, maybe insecurities you have about reading scripture, or like one of the big ones is I have to be super smart to somehow understand what's going on there, um, which is absolutely not true. And uh, in fact, it's usually the super smart people that miss the most common, uh, you know, evidence that's there of what they should be doing and what message they should be understanding. So... Today, I just want to kind of continue on a little bit of what I did last time. And so, in a way to remind you, last time we talked about the useful scripture, we spoke, uh, or I spoke from 2 Timothy 2 14 uh, through 4 4. It's kind of a longer passage. We're going to come back to that a number of times. If this is, if you want to kind of think about this as our theme statement or theme scripture for this series, that's, that's great. Learn it, know it, memorize it. We're going to come back full circle, use it again at the end of our, uh, of our series, okay? So that's 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 4, 4. And I mentioned that the scripture is useful for really kind of two things. One is it's useful for knowing good, which really translates to knowing God, because, you know, God is the only one good. Uh, I mentioned that a belief that we all have to embrace is that his word is the authority that cuts through all the other words, which I'm going to talk about even more today and try to kind of, again, take a further step in that direction. All right? And then we talked about it's useful for doing good. That uh, a lot of times our definition of good is pretty vague, it's pretty shallow, and we don't have really a sense of it. We just sort of generally assume we're good, and that kind of excuses us from having to do too much good, particularly uh, active things. So long as we don't do bad things, we're somehow pretty good, Uh, which is so counter the message of the gospel, Uh, which really has nothing to do with not doing bad things like what the law was for. The law has already expressed that to us. But it has everything to do with adding on top of that not doing good thing, or not doing bad things, which is what a child learns, actually doing good in our world. And that the scripture allows us and sort of makes a pathway uh, for us to do those things. And we talked about that his word is, or does, uh, rather, make us good. It, it's performative. When we learn it and, and memorize it and it becomes written on our hearts, it, it is the very thing that makes us good. Not a rote performance of behavior or a uh, strict obedience, you know, to some pathway or set of rules, but it's the word actually makes us good as it's written on our hearts. And this is one of the mysteries of the gospel, mysteries of the word of God. It's hard to explain really, but it's performative. And I mentioned the example that I had heard in my preaching class on the dry bones kind of becoming flesh, that that, that, uh, God spoke that into those bones And it became something. So um, I want to continue on with that idea, starting with the word. I just have a few ideas. I'm not going to go long like I did last time, I promise. We'll see. Uh, So far, one minute. Um, So have you ever had an idea and then, like, spoke it out loud and realized how stupid it was? Yeah, Yeah, right? That's, like, a common thing. So it's really a common thing for me. I tried to think of examples of this, and I couldn't even think of examples. And I was frustrated with why I can't think of examples. You can think of examples, Chelsea? Oh. Oh. Oh, my gosh. Well, never mind. I just want to go with what I have here, um, which is, in my mind, those have just disappeared entirely. Probably my brain's way of hoping that they'd never come back to the surface, uh, that they just got rid of that, that they were very relieved that those things never, you know, sort of came into fruition. Who knows? But I couldn't think of any examples. But I will be here to tell you, and I think Chelsea can confirm this, apparently, I have had a lot of bad ideas that when I articulate, it's like, what was I thinking? Well, what is it about that, you know, that some idea can kind of be caught up, and then as soon as we sort of speak it, bringing it into being, it's like, mm, not so great, okay? I want you to think about that as, uh, as we're reading through both of these longer passages because there's a heavy emphasis here on uh, words uh, and, and even just the idea of the word and truth. And so we're going to actually read two texts text that I think need to be read pretty much side by side, and that is John 1, 1 through 18, and then Genesis 1, 1 through 19. So it's going to be a little bit longer, um, but, you know, if you have questions, uh, so long as it's not like, do you believe in, like, seven-day creation, uh, then, and the answer is no, uh, but um, then I think we'll be fine. You know, again, I'll, I'll sort of ignore your questions if they don't pertain to what we're doing. But really, I, this active reading of Scripture I think is kind of important, so don't be shy if you've got a question about a word or about a phrase just just ask it real quick and maybe I can answer it nine times out of ten I probably can't uh so we'll just all know that hey everyone has that question and we'll move on all right so here we go John 1 1 through 18 in the beginning was the word let me give you a background real quick though um not on God or anything but uh sorry John right uh, the fourth of the Gospels, uh, John was considered the apostle that uh, Jesus loved, which, I mean, that's a little bit of a weird phrase to use, like as if he didn't love the other ones. But what this is primarily contrasting is this, that John in his early days, along with his brother, were considered the sons of thunder, which meant they had very little love in their hearts. And so, really, when John uses this, I'm the apostle that Jesus loved, he's really kind of more talking about how his background has radically changed from a man of non-love to having love and being characterized by that very love, and it's a pretty amazing thing. And also, John writes this way later on, after many of the other Gospels were written. That's why it's so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's possible that he could have been stranded, deserted, sort of like Napoleon or something, uh, excommunicated, which wasn't a thing back then, onto an island and was writing about this, and this is when he sees his revelation and all of these things. So, just let that know. You know, the the, the temple was gone, society had changed 50 or zero years after uh, these other gospels were written. So it takes on a very, very different theme, and uh, in particular, it was sort of written to Jewish people trying to make sense of this new Christianity after 50 years. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, or though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Like What? <laughs> From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only son who is at the father's side, has made him known. All right, I want to read Genesis 1. Uh, 1 through uh, 19, okay? And, uh, you know, a good reading of this text would, I think, require you to recognize just how much John is picking up this theme of Genesis 1 and sort of re-articulating it. He is changing it a little bit, and, and but he's picking up on these very themes. And I think reading them right next to each other hopefully will uh, we'll at least uh, kind of... Uh, um, clue you in on that there's some, very, there's some specific words being used here Okay, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said let there be light and there was light God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning in the first day And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the ground appear. And it was so. God called the ground dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed, according to their kinds and trees, bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky, to separate the man, to separate, whoa, hello, Uh, (laughs) to separate the day from the night. So, You already have to kind of pause here and be like, what? What happened to the light? You it get shut off? He's got to recreate the light? Like, I thought we already had the light. How did all these seeds grow without any light, right? So that's confusing. Hopefully you read that and you pick up on that. You can't possibly read over that without being like, where did this second light come from? And what's the purpose of it? Oh, dear. And let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, and the lesser night to govern the night. Which is also kind of a weird statement, considering the moon doesn't have any light. But we won't address that quite yet. Um, He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. Yeah, I already made a star. It's called the sun. What? What happened here? To govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So, let me tell you how... uh, The ancient Near East uh, reader would have read this original story, okay? And that is that God had spoke into being the things that have existed. Okay, spoke them into being. By his power, simply, he was able to speak, and they, they came to be. Now, you contrast that with what we talked about at the very beginning, and our words and ideas not only not really making much sense... But certainly we use a lot of words that never get spoken to being or aren't true about who we are or whatever else. And so in both of these texts, we're getting at least some comparison between human words, which we talked about last time, and the authority of God's words, which he has the ability to speak things into being simply by speaking them, and then they come. That there's no real difference between the words being spoken and the actions actually happening. Now... We talked about this a lot last time with the whole idea of knowing uh, about something and, you know, knowing how to talk about something or just talking about it. And how there's a huge separation between the things that we say or the things that we think and the things that we do. No such separation in God. This is really interesting. Because if God has given us a word through the scripture, then we can rely on that word as being inextricably, I don't think that's, yeah, I think it is, linked to him and further action, and it comes true, because there is no separation between what God says and what he does, unlike us. And this is incredibly important, because the majority of arguments about the scripture have been whether these are human words or whether these are divine words. And certainly when we're reading back through Genesis and seeing things that seem human, either we're understanding them or misunderstanding them, or they, uh, the people who originally were writing them were somehow misunderstanding them. We're going to talk about this later on as well. But the point here is simply that his words prove true, that unlike us, when God speaks something into being, it is something that has it's happened. It, it gets created simply by the power of his speaking. And if you read a lot of, of ancient Near East myth, uh, myths, you see a lot of things being created by hands and physical things, and there's this sort of physical nature, uh, and yet God has the ability to sort of speak these things into being simply by the words he speaks. This is an incredibly uh, important point here, but um, let me move on because, uh, yeah, we'll get into this quite a bit more. Let me make a note here really quickly. And that is that one of the things that, uh, that you're going to hear a lot of in Christian interpretation is the difference between literalism, okay, or something being literal and something being literalistic. You ever heard of this before? Maybe, possibly, if you haven't, here you are. Here's your introduction to these two things. Okay, literalism or literal and literalistic. For all intents and purposes, you're not gonna be able to look those two words up in a dictionary and make any sense of the difference between them because they're basically the exact same thing. (laughs) So you're going to have to do a little bit of common sense work here to recognize the difference. When I say, and I say with some frequency, that I am literally bored out of my mind, Nobody around me thinks that all of a sudden I have just, through boredom, gone insane. (laughs) But people recognize that what I am saying is that my boredom has reached this point where I cannot function. And I just am so bored that I just can't figure out what to do around me. Now, anytime you use the term I literally this, if someone says you didn't literally do it, What they're doing is being literalistic, meaning that they don't have the ability to go beyond the words that you're speaking to recognize there's a type, okay, in this case, exaggeration, hyperbole, of literature that you're engaging to prove your point. Ah. So when we read scripture, we have to read literally. We have to take what the authors are saying at face value. There is no allegorical or metaphorical reading of Scripture that's appropriate to the text if the author isn't using a metaphor or an illusion (laughs) or an allegory. Okay? But what happens when we're literalistic is, actually, it's something that happens very similar to allegory. We place our own emphasis. We decide that the authority lays with us which is the most simple common sense understanding of a text without paying any attention to the types or categories or the original author's intent. So we just like in reading allegorically become the people who are in control. Okay? And so both a wooden, which has been that's kind of I like to think of it as wooden. It doesn't it's no there's no types, there's no changes, it's just wood and it's not even cool wood. It's like old rotting wood. A wooden interpretation can be very literalistic. We're looking at just the words and we're not paying any attention to all of the things going on uh, in, in association with the author's intent. A wonderful example of this, although maybe it's not so wonderful, uh, is, uh, well, a wonderful example of allegory is taking Song of Solomon to mean that this is the relationship between God and, and her people, right? It's terrible, oh, weird, actually, very weird uh, if you do that. Because you have to ignore a lot or you have to go beyond that. But the literalistic interpretation of Song of Solomon has always been to just cut that baby out because that's some strange stuff. And so you've had a whole lot of people throughout the ages want to just completely get rid of Song of Solomon because this is not worthy of the Bible, man. When we're talking about breasts and things like that. That just shouldn't be in there, okay? And comparing them, you know, to deer and that's just this, this is weird, okay? Is some really weird stuff. And it gets way worse than that, all right? So I just want to give that as kind of a primer because when we're talking about the word of God, we're looking to try to understand it from a literal sense, which is always controlled first by God himself and second by the person who's articulating those words and third by us receiving those ultimately from God. And that's, that's really important because otherwise this whole idea of our words and our, our ideas that aren't very good, and that don't prove true, start to mix in, and God's word that always proved true gets sort of muddled or confused or disappears in the text. And this is one of the most, I think, basic things uh, that we have to have kind of a conviction of, is choosing to read the scripture literally without being literalistic. All right, probably more of us are guilty, maybe, of allegory uh, uh, and reading in spiritual ways, um, but still, we've got to kind of hit that, that middle ground. All right, so let me give you just kind of two points here and do with them what you will, okay? The first one is the word of God brings order out of chaos and light into darkness. Um, When you really read back through Genesis 1, what's being talked about there with the original lights is not light at all. It couldn't possibly be. Um, What he's talking about is time. And the whole idea of the beginning part of Genesis is that God makes time, that there's this time. He's... Uh, applied time, being a timeless being, onto earth and its various structures, and that he's brought order out of a chaotic swirling of things, and light into darkness, very much exactly like what John is saying when he says that Jesus has come full of grace and truth, Uh, he's the light, but the darkness has not understood it, all right? And so the word brings order out of chaos, light into darkness. If you read Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13, they're all going to make a statement here that's really pretty amazing. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And this is, this is really interesting, and, you know, we can't go into to all of it uh, right now. The, I think, again, main purpose here is we're looking at how Jesus talks about his words as being associated with him. There's no gap between the two. They're linked. In and, and John 12, he says, my, my, I'm not going to be the one to judge these people. My very words on that day will judge them. He's not actually saying he's not going to be the judge. Other places, it's very clear that Jesus will be the judge. He's saying his word and his person, who he is at his very essence, are the same. Okay? So, now that you have that in your minds, and whether that's an amazing idea to you or not, it probably isn't. It would have certainly been an absolutely amazing idea to its original hearers. And here's why. Number one, if you were a Greek hearing this word, logos... Logos meant for you the kind of epitome of learning and wisdom and rational thinking. It was the thing that's the most true. And remember in Greek thought, that's not physical. Physical is only, according to Plato, some pathetic form of something else that's much more divine and perfect. And so the idea that John would have come and said, hey, this most wise thing in all of the world, this most beautiful a epitome of human learning and understanding has come to you in personal form would have absolutely just been laughable and in fact in Acts they do laugh at Paul in a variety of times he mentions this idea to him okay just wouldn't be ideas are much bigger than people and so a person could never embody the full idea the full perfection of what, uh, of what we need to know and what we need to to understand about the world This is a radical, radical idea. Second point here that I want to make is the word gives us the best view of God's character we will ever get in this life. Best view of God's character. Read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. The author talks about Jesus is the exact representation of God's glory, the sun's radiance. Again, uh, going back to Genesis, kind of using this, this analogy of the sun shining. So he's the exact representation of God. So, in essence, then, Jesus is both the code to us understanding Scripture, but the very content of it. It's very strange. Um, this would be sort of akin to, uh, I don't know, maybe like, uh, I have this key lock on my garage and you like push in, wait, I shouldn't tell you the code because then you could access it. Uh, but there's a code, right? And, but let's just say instead of the code, because that would ruin my example, it's one of those like skeleton key door locks or whatever. And you've got the key, right? And you go to open the key and I feel like this is something from a movie or a video game and then there's like nothing in there. And the whole idea was for you to recognize that the key was the thing that you needed in the first place. The key has value in and of itself, right? Maybe like it's worth gold, like it's a gold key or something, right? Um, well, that's the idea of Jesus being the interpretive benchmark of Scripture. Is you don't use Jesus to understand Scripture and then somehow become a great person. That's not the key. Jesus himself is both the key and the content of the Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that he is all of the scripture. There are, if you read the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't show up very often, okay? But that doesn't mean he's not the interpretive benchmark for us understanding what takes place in the Old Testament. One of our biggest issues with reading the Old Testament is we expect that the character's actions are good actions. And we try to, like, justify the things that they're doing. (laughs) No, no, no. No, Jesus is the the interpretive benchmark for them and what they did, Okay, and so how can David possibly be, you know, a man after God's own heart when the latter part of his life he lived in basically disobedience to God? Well, Jesus is the benchmark, okay? And so he's both the code to which we have to use to unlock any of the scripture, but he's also the content. It's the, it's the thing that we're ultimately going to figure out. And what many of us, I think, sometimes possibly don't understand, it's like the whole treasure in the field example, um, You know, that whole story about finding a treasure in a field and then giving up your field assumes you recognize the treasure in the first place. What if you don't know that that trinket or object or whatever you found is actually incredibly valuable? Well, then there's no possible way you're going to give up your field, right? You have to actually know that it's valuable. And one of the most important things, I think, in understanding Scripture is recognizing, first, that Jesus is literally, there you go, inside of us, helping us interpret Scripture. And when we don't read Scripture, we simply can't hear His voice. We've got a key, but we expect the key is going to open something, but the key is the valuable thing in the first place. That's just really, really important. It's a little bit trippy, I think, but it's incredibly important because we want to hear from Jesus. We want to know what He's saying about our life, uh, but we have no real ability to value... This new ability that we have to understand and read scripture. So we just don't do it. And and we can't, we can't, that that doesn't work, all right? It's like having a gold bar and then not recognizing that you have a gold bar. You know, you're like, oh, that's a nice brick. Um, You know what? I read, and this is so tangential, but you know there's not that much gold in the world? Because it got me thinking about why is it that we value gold? Like, yeah, okay, it's it's the least uh, corrosive metal. It's super soft. It has some really cool uh, electricity functions. But why do we value it? Why is that like the thing that backs up our dollar? You know how much gold there is in the world? All right, because I know this is just the only thing you're going to remember. One football field, 35 foot high. That is all of the gold that has ever physically been mined. have been watching the shows about people finding gold and stuff, but um, there's really not that much gold. Well, just to pretend like there is some kind of point in all of that... Um, if the reason gold is so valuable, like diamonds, which that's a whole other time, I don't to talk about that, that's crazy, it really flip your mind up, uh, is how rare it is, then I think what you've got to re- realize and read into Scripture is how rare it is that people truly mastered or understood how to hear God's voice and how to hear his word. This is not something you're going to find a whole lot of people around you have done very well at. The very passage of John makes very clear, I came to my own people and they didn't even recognize me. But for those who did, they received something pretty amazing and I want to talk about that uh, in just a moment. So to back up here, two different ideas I want to give you and I'm going to finish up here. The first one is, the first belief is we've got to recognize that Jesus' words will never pass away. The ideas we have, the things we understand about life, about ourselves, the words we speak, the directions we have, all of that at some level is disconnected from who we are. Because it's stuff, it's words. Now, does it come from our heart, as the scripture says, the overflow of the heart? Sure, there are things that you can understand about our person from what they say. But with God, that's not true. Everything that is spoken is spoken into existence and has power. It has the bite that we were talking about last time. And so how could we possibly, possibly not treat the scripture as anything other than the only thing of value that's going to last in terms of human wisdom and, and, and how to get, get on with what it is we ought to be getting on with? I mean, that's just, it just elevates. And I think that's one of the things that's so hard for us uh, to truly believe. And you've got to ask yourself, do you believe that? Do you believe that all the other words that you've learned and the things that you understand about yourself and the world and all of that apart from Jesus' words will truly pass away or his word? I certainly don't mean just like the Gospels, um, but his word as it's presented. Although I certainly would start with the Gospels. Okay, that's number one. And if we do believe that, I think one of the things that we can really do that opens up doors for us as we're reading through Scripture is we can always ask ourselves, how is truth? How does Jesus present the truth of this passage? So in all of our scriptural reading, but I think particularly we've got to figure this out in the Gospels first, is how does Jesus give us truth in this passage? And remember, it's not an idea. It's a person. So that's incredibly hard to sometimes, you know, relate. But then the second thing, because the truth, as I mentioned, it kind of bites us. How does he give us grace in this passage. Where is the grace and where is the truth? If you start with just asking those two questions. In your reading throughout the week. I think you're going to find. That you're going you're to sort of gravitate. To a much more Christ centered interpretation of scripture. Because when we get the truth. We're going to need the grace. Because sometimes the grace. The truth rather is a little bit difficult. And overwhelms us. Or makes us feel like we're less than adequate. It's like my dad and I watch this really campy cheesy horror, it's actually a show about horror films called Matinee, yesterday, which was awesome, we had a blast, right, Uber Eats and Matinee, Um, and uh, John Goodman's in it, it's by the people who did The Gremlins, which like, oh my gosh, such a great movie, right, Gremlins, anyway, the movie's really cool because this guy loves to scare people when he's just kind of this old traditional style, want to scare people, I know a lot of you don't like horror movies, but I'm obsessed with them, it's like kind of the only movies I really watch. And one of the things that he said I thought was really articulated well was what's so cool about a horror movie is you scare people, make them, you know, kind of all these primal, uh, you know, fears. You play on those. And then when they walk out of the movie, do you have a question? or what? what is it? I thought you were just stretching because I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah, grace and truth in the passage. I was rolling, Austin, my story, and then I saw your hand. and. Anyway, scare them until they can't, you know, until they wet their seat, basically. But then, end the whole movie with some sort of resolution and let them walk outside and see that the world still exists and it's still okay. And, and of course, this movie actually kind of has some really interesting, darker themes about the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. And that's what's so great about horror movies is uh, what he says. And I think, to some degree that's great, except for horror movies have become a little bit twisted and uh, some of them now, like, there's no good ending and uh, creepy stuff. Um, but the social commentary ones, those ones are really good. We were talking about Get Out this morning, Josh and I. Um, oh, man. Okay, so we had a bunch of clips. Uh, but then some of you would be really mad at me for showing horror movies at church. Uh, not Leslie, but like other people. Um, but that's what's. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Write that down, every one of you. Horror movies are the interpretive benchmark for understanding Scripture. Uh, Okay, so I liken this to the same idea of reading Scripture. When we read Scripture, guys, at the end of, of the entire process of reading it, we're learning truth, but we have a great ending to understanding this truth, and that's that Jesus gives us grace within all of that. Which is really amazing, actually, Um, but you've got to do both, I think, at the same time, grace and truth. And, And that's what John is getting at here, is that Jesus brings and is full of both, grace and truth, and when I'm reading, what is the truth of what I'm reading, and where is the grace in this? And I say, where is the grace for us? Because I think, as a disciple, someone who's really growing your spirituality, as you're reading, you're not just reading for your own you need to communicate, or the truth, they need a huge, you know, kind of point there. So, way is that we're now uh, being there, uh, truth, as any, more than any other words we're going to receive. The second thing uh, is that, uh, that ultimately, Jesus is the code and and the content, that when we read Scripture, we're reading to understand uh, who Jesus is and how he brings to light uh, these things that have been dark to us before, how he's bringing order out of the chaos of our lives. Uh, That's why this passage sort of rings so true into Genesis, is because when we read Scripture, God is bringing order out of the chaos of our lives, he is bringing truth into the darkness of how we have viewed the world up to this point. Just in the way that he did that in our physical world, he is doing that in our physical world, in our minds, in our, uh, our understanding of the world. And that's what scripture is about. And that, that this idea that scripture is, is so hard to understand and complex and requires so much effort to pull it out doesn't really make much sense when you think about how the word is talked about in scripture. As being the thing that brings order out of chaos, not makes chaos. The thing that brings light into darkness, not, you know, sort of shrouds that darkness. And so if we're reading scripture in a way that isn't bringing out those things, some of it is just because we've got to figure out some techniques. And we've got to figure it out, or we've got to open our heart to it, or there's belief things that we've got to do there. You know, as Jesus says, uh, or as John says about Jesus... They didn't understand the darkness, and they refused to. And when we accept it, the scripture brings to light a lot of these things that were once dark, brings order out of chaos in our lives. The Hebrews understood Logos pretty differently than the Greeks did, but still didn't quite get it, and this was a radical passage for them. Logos to them meant an expression of truth. Some truth expressed in a way, and it usually to them had some personal characteristic to it, all right? Personal characteristic meaning an angel who comes and expresses God's will or, you know, some aspect of God that you get. To them, that's what Logos meant. Now, for Jesus to be the perfect and fullest expression of God would have been far too radical for them to understand. Okay? So I think there's two lessons here, too, and, and this is just sort of a side thing in these, these, this Greek understanding this Hebrew understanding. One of the first... uh, is for us is we have to not settle for ideas when we have a person. If you're reading scripture and as a result of your scripture reading, you're getting a long litany of new ideas in your faith, but not really growing as a person who understands Jesus, you've missed the point entirely. As John 5 talks about talking to the Jews, you diligently study the scriptures and yet you missed me. That's what I'm talking about when say study and devotional are so important together because you'll leave in a very Greek understanding of the world, with some great ideas uh, about how to live and practical tips on this and that. But if you're not leaving with a sense of encountering Jesus, uh, you've misused the Scripture. And you really missed the point of the Scripture, which was an encounter with Jesus himself because any time we hear a word from him, it is an encounter with God himself because his word is not separate from him. But even as the Hebrews, in their understanding of logos, we ought not settle for glimpses of God. As Moses begged God to pass by him on the rock to just get a close glimpse of who he was, guys, the scripture, we have a full-on understanding of who God is compared to what Moses did. And Moses spoke with God. The Hebrew authors, Paul, would say we have a better understanding of the character of God than Moses did, and Moses even spoke with God. And yet we take this character of God and knowing him for granted. uh, when we don't pay much attention to reading the scripture. And so don't settle for glimpses or expressions of God when you have the full thing from reading scripture. So one of my most important points, and this is the second application point, is when you read scripture, you've got to ask yourself, what does this say about the character of God? So it's one of the most important things you could possibly ask. What does this say about the character of God? Because if you're not walking away from scripture recognizing God's character... Uh, then you're getting an idea, maybe, or you're getting some description of him, but you still miss the point, which is understanding that Jesus is full of grace and truth. One of the things I've come to notice in uh, some of the debates between liberalism and, and fundamentalism is that they, people have a tendency to either emphasize God's love or his judgment. Now, many of us would think, oh, it's good to emphasize God's love. I don't think so. Because if you can't possibly wrap God's judgment into how he's a loving God, then you've missed him. Just like if you can't wrap his love into his judgment, you've missed him. Not to mention the fact that God is love. You don't just focus on God's love as being a behavior separate from him. And so I think a better way of understanding character is character is super nuanced. Okay, It's not just, oh, I'm loving or I'm judgmental. It's nuanced. It's in by nuance. I mean, it's complicated. There's there's aspects of it, uh, just like understanding a person uh, that can be very difficult. And one of the really uh, important points is we ought not think of love and judgment as bipolar here, but as both being a part of God's character. And if we can't reconcile the two, then we see God as being bipolar. And that's really one of the major errors or heresies that popped up pretty early in Christianity. Arian controversy, right? Where you've got a God that's bad in the Old Testament and a God that's sweet in the New Testament. And they're not really related to each other. They're sort of like manifestations. There's a lot of reason why we don't like the Old Testament because we can't reconcile uh, our bipolar understanding of God. But that's why character reading is so important. One of the first questions that you adults in your small groups are going to have this week is how would you explain God's goodness in a way that's not Christianese, not cliche, or not vague? How do you explain the character of God? One of the cool things about uh, you know, where we're at now in terms of our society is we care a lot about the character of our leaders, or at least we say we do. <laughs> where in the past it would be more like just a kind of a th- uh, authority. Um, but we at least want them you know to be somewhat decent human beings. Well, if you can uh, help someone see the character of God, you're going to open up more doors than uh, just simply helping them overcome rational obstacles to a scripture. So, in terms of next week, uh, John 5:31 through 37 is going to be kind of the homework here, and I'm not going to lie, these passages are probably just as vague and hard to understand as my sermon today. So, um 5 John 5:31 5, through 37 and John 7:14 through 24. All right? Yeah, John 5:31 through 37. And uh, John 7, 14 through 24. Those of you who are pretty new to scripture reading or just haven't kind of been out of practice, one of the main reasons we're using a lot of gospel passages is so that uh, you can kind of more readily apply some of the things we're talking about. Because it's certainly easier to try to find grace and truth in John um, than, say, like Ezekiel or something like that. Um, It's just not that they're not there. Because the passage here in John, he's saying adding grace on top of grace. Which very much means that the Old Testament was... Full of grace. And we're just now getting a fuller picture of that grace in Jesus. Um, but, uh, but it's just easier to, I think, practice that in our, uh, in our reading. I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'm just going to launch you guys right on into uh, to communion. If you're not taking communion with us before, um, the baskets. Someone will be uh, back there, dip the bread into the juice, and uh, uh, you'll be, uh, you can talk and celebrate, and we'll come back together and sing a few more songs. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Um, we admit that we are in a time period where, uh, ironically, you have never been more accessible to us. And yet, we have never been perhaps less interested in knowing you. Um, yeah, I, I don't even have a real great solution for it. Other than uh, we um, change the beliefs that we have. The things that we... Hold most dearest to us, that we begin to try out, as you tell us to do in John 5 and John 7, your word, and see what fruit it bears in our lives. Help us to be more willing to try those things out, to reclaim uh, a scriptural understanding of the world, uh, one that, uh, that's written on our hearts, or we, we desperately need it. With all the things that uh, seem to be going wrong and the fears that we have and insecurities, we need A firm foundation in you and in your word, Lord. We love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week, and you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.